The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. Mohsen Hamid's latest novel, The Last White Man, encounters themes of a pandemic, globalised migration and xenophobia, all thrown back to us in new forms and allowing us to see them in a new light. Mohsen Hamid, the British-Pakistani novelist of The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Booker Prize-nominated Exit West, talked to Osman Faruqi at Antidote 2022 about whiteness, privilege and the transcendent power of love. This event was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in September 2022. Good day, everyone. Very lovely to see you all here. My name is Osman Faruqi. I'm the culture news editor at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald, and it is wonderful to be in Sydney, one of my favourite cities in the world, probably my favourite city in the world. Um, at the Opera House, which is definitely my favourite venue in the world on a beautiful day like today. Um, I'm extremely excited to be chatting to one of my favourite writers, Mohsen Hamid. Uh, he's the author of The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Exit West, two of my favourite books in particular. Both of those were shortlisted for the Booker Prize. And his latest novel is called The Last White Man. It's a extraordinary interrogation of race, identity and nationalism. And we're going to hear a little bit more about some of the plot, but the basic kind of drive of the story is we're in a world where white people start turning dark. Doesn't sound that bad to me, but um, <laughs> it's, it's a really fascinating uh, framework and conceit to explore a lot of issues. Mostan, thank you so much for talking thank you. to me. Thanks for having me. Um, this is actually the third time Mostan and I have spoken in a couple of weeks about his book. Um, he's probably getting very sick of me, but I don't think most of the people here, unless you've followed us from Melbourne, which, you know, if you did, that's great. He's very lovely and delightful to listen to. Uh, you wouldn't have heard uh, him talk about this book yet. It's very, very new. And um, even though I've spoken to, to you a few times, I've found myself wanting to talk more and more. And it's kind of nice that there's a clock here because otherwise I think we get carried away. So probably enough preamble from me. Let's get into it. Today's September 11th, yep. which is a pretty auspicious anniversary of an event that happened 21 years ago. Your, your book, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, tackled the aftermath of, of 9-11 from a, a bunch of different perspectives. But this book, The Last White Man, its basic kind of attempt to deconstruct the idea of race and remind us that it is a social construct that we impose, that we've created... Your realisation of that, your personal realisation of that, had its roots in September 11, 2001, didn't it? Yeah. Um, so uh, in 2001, I was 30 and I just moved to London in the end of July 2001 uh, from New York. And I'd lived 18 of my first 30 years in the US, uh, 12 in Pakistan. And uh, I had lived in these big cosmopolitan cities and I'd gone to these sort of elite universities, um, had this well-paying job, and I was aware of discrimination, um, you know, in society. And 
but I wouldn't have said that discrimination was one of the main challenges that I faced in my life. Mm. And uh, and suddenly after 9-11, it was interesting because you know, you'd go to the airport and you'd be hauled out of line for an extra security check, you'd fly in, and immigration would sort of take you into a room for several hours and question you. And then you would um, uh, you know, get onto a bus on the weekend, a little bit of stubble, you've got your backpack, and the person next to you sort of gets up and changes seats or it looks mm. uncomfortable. And it was it was amazing how quickly and how dramatic it was to have gone from, you know, kind of being a default human being to being somebody onto whom this sense of threat was being written. And um, and I wanted things to go back to the way they were, and I kept hoping things would go back to the way they were. Um, I felt like, you know, that I'd lost something. And uh, and after a while, I began to ask, you know, what I'd lost. And, and, and I started to wonder whether... Um, it wasn't like a kind of uh, a sort of partial whiteness that I'd lost. Mm. That if, if whiteness is just being a human being, you know, simple. Um, not being that, losing that was something that I, I felt quite strongly. And, and I started to wonder, you know, whether it was right of me to want things to go back to how they were. Um, or if instead I'd been sort of complicit in something before. Mm. If I'd been in my own way... Um, engaged with and kind of perpetuating something that I now felt quite uncomfortable with. So initially I wrote a novel, as you said, The Rotten Fundamentalist in 2007, which talks specifically about the way in which this suspicion is manufactured and created between um, people of a Muslim or non-Muslim Western background. Um, but the underlying idea that, that your race or your ethnicity can suddenly be... Um, completely changed. People can look at it very, very differently, almost overnight, yeah. stayed. And uh, and eventually, the idea of a young man, Anders, who wakes up dark and had gone to bed the night before light um, seemed like a story I wanted to tell. Yeah, I feel like there's a couple of bits of that that I want to tease because I think yeah. that realization and then choosing to tell a story about this is is fascinating, but there's probably a few steps you went through before you got there. What, you, what you're kind of talking about are these two distinct things. One is the idea of whiteness, and it's interesting that you say that's not just about your skin color. You can be a brown Pakistani uh, person who felt like they were part of that dominant, you know, racial majority. Or, that, or, enough, enough, enough. Yeah, yes, part, yes, yeah, yes, partly yeah. part of it. Yeah, um, that that can shift, but also that there's a sense of being white, white people don't think about themselves as white. They're just the default person that operates in in society. And it felt like this book and your character, the main character, Anders, that was something that you were trying to challenge as well, not just the notion that it's, that it's something that can shift race, but that you have to actually, the only way a white person could ever even envisage the concept is if their skin physically changed to become dark. Yeah, well, it's, in a sense, it's a bit like travel. So, um, you know, very often when you leave the place that you live in and you go to a different place and people look at you differently, mm. you, um, that has an impact. Uh, you know, for example, you go to a place where you don't speak the language very well and suddenly you've lost your sense of humor. You know, how do you tell a joke? How can you be funny? How can you be charming? Um, what do people think you are? Uh, it's incredible how quickly you can change uh, as, as a kind of person. And, and I think, you know, a lot of the time, most of us go through life 
imagining that we are something, that, that this is my identity, this is who I am, uh, and forgetting that, uh, that that identity is a relational thing. It, it's made possible by how people relate to us. Mm. And if people relate to us differently, it can change very dramatically. Um, you know, you, you, feel that, uh, you feel that when you travel, you feel that when certain political developments happen, you know, in Ukraine today, Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers who have lived side by side relatively peacefully for centuries, you know, are suddenly now put in this position of, of being in this, in this, you know, conflict, depending on where you are. So, yeah, I think that that, that idea that um, how other people look at you uh, isn't just external to you. It actually affects how you look at yourself mm. uh, is, is very much part of it. I know from talking to you that you had gone through a few different iterations of how to explore this idea. You know, you've, you've, you've ended up with a book about a man who goes to bed white and wakes up dark, but you had flirted with the idea of having someone dark go white. Can you talk to us about how you ended up with this particular kind of story? Yeah. Uh, so, so the novel could have been a novel about um, a young man with dark skin who wakes up with light skin and the kind of transformation that he experiences, or a young woman. Uh, and um, I, I considered that but decided not to do it because I think already there's a, there's a sort of assimilationist narrative that's, that's out there, which is that people, if they just assimilate to a, uh, a culture of a place that they've immigrated to, um, that they will be accepted mm. as now, you know, uh, effectively a default Australian or a default American or a default yeah. British person. Um, and uh, and the reality, of course, is that 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 doesn't necessarily always happen or even you know entirely ever happen. Um, that that uh, uh, people um, grow up in a place, they speak in the same way, they. Uh, participate fully in the culture and then suddenly they can find, you know, at immigration yeah. um, or when stopped by a police officer or, you know, when things get rowdy in a bar that, uh, wait a second, you're, you're being questioned as not being part of this group. And so I didn't want to, I guess, write a novel about uh, a racial transformation as, as an assimilationist experience. I was more interested in saying, well, if, if assimilation is, is what people are asked to do, and yet, when they try to assimilate, it seems like they can almost never assimilate enough. Uh, what might be more interesting is to see, you know, what happens if the reverse occurs? If, if somebody suddenly finds themselves um, being viewed as, as the other, um, they find their membership, in a sense, being revoked by how other people look at them. And, and that led me to doing it uh, the way I did, which is a, of, of white people becoming dark. We talked about how one of these ideas, this this kind of realization you had around uh, race and identity, w was rooted in in 9/11. But th this book is not a reaction to that, really. It feels, and may maybe this isn't right, but it, it certainly read to me like a response to more contemporary debates, discussions, feelings you might be having about the state of the world at the moment, both geopolitically and and internally, with rising far right extremism and. and You've talked about the way that we have been divided in, into herds. Am I reaching too far to project that onto you, or are you were you looking at, say, the rise of Trumpism and and these other movements you mentioned, Russia before China, and 
responding a bit to that as well. Yeah, I think, um, so So the book, I really started writing the book uh, after my previous book, Exit West, came out in 2017. Um, and of course, you know, the uh, the US elections and the, and the Brexit vote in the UK and a, ga- a, a growing sense that there was sort of a resurgent, uh, not just white nationalistic movement, but um, a, movements of the original pure people mm. all over the world. Um, into which I would put, you know, Putin's Russia, an idea of, you know, sort of uh, a great Russianness, or, or the one's Turkey, or the Hindutva of, of Modi's India, or, um, you know, Xi's China, uh, Taliban in Afghanistan, you know, Pakistan has similar things of yearning for a glorious Muslim past. Mm. It seems like all over the world right now, but there are politicians who are either the leaders of their countries or the leading opposition of their countries who are responding to a sense of unease about the future that so many people are feeling with a nostalgic claim about the past, saying that things were better before. Let's go back to how we were. Let's go back to the golden age of Islam. Let's go back to 1950s America or, or Britain before the EU. And, uh, and so... It's in that environment, I guess, somebody like myself, who's a thoroughly, you know, mongrelized, hybridized person, you know, very mixed. Um, it, it feels almost personally threatening, I think, to me, this idea that our world is going to become a world where we each fetishize this pure tribe. Mm. Because those of us who are, you know, multi-tribal or across tribe uh, or non-tribe, uh, what is the place for people? Yeah, where like do you that? fit in? Yeah, and so I think that that began to become quite a strong feeling for me around, you know, 2017, um, 2016, and uh, and it seemed to me that you know I wanted to write about this um, this impulse to group ourselves into tribes, and to explore the opposite, which is to say, what if we weren't able to? What if we couldn't uh, distinguish each other in terms of race? What if our sorting mechanism uh, that determines, you know, what race you think somebody belongs to breaks down and suddenly it's just a person. You can't figure out, you know, what race they are. What would that be like? And, uh, and yeah, so that's where the novel flowed from. My next question is actually stolen from someone who asked this at another session that we did in Melbourne. And I, it was really interesting. They, they mentioned your um, previous novel, Exit West, and they said, you know, you use these magical realist sort of devices the world sort of feels contemporary, but something happens to it. You describe, you can describe Exit West. I've heard you do it much neater than I can. For people who have not read the book, do you mind kind of just giving a quick summary of that and sure. and maybe answering what appeals to you using these kinds of conceits in your novels? So my previous novel, Exit West, is a novel where these two characters, Seyd and Nadia, begin in an unnamed country and a terrible civil war uh, befalls that country. And they're living in a world where these sort of doors begin to open, where one day you walk into your house and you open your um, the door to your closet. But instead of it being a door to your closet, it's, it's an opaque black rectangle. And if you push through it, you're no longer in Sydney. You're actually in, in Kinshasa or you're in Karachi. And, and people begin to move. And billions of people move in the space of a couple of years. And say the Nadia flee this war and they flee... Um, first to Greece and then to London and to California. But in a sense, it's a novel about, about the universality of migration and about the next two or three hundred years of migration compressed into just two or three years uh, that looked at um, 
the fact that we are sort of all of us universally migrants, that when you live a life, you migrate through time. And um, even if you've lived in Sydney your whole life, if you're 51 or 61 or 71, I'm 51, um, the city has changed mm. and you haven't moved, but yet you have become a kind of migrant. A city isn't what it used to look like. Um, nobody who's 51 or 61 or 71 has ever been that age before. It's strange to suddenly be a middle-aged or an old person. You don't think of yourself as that. <laughs> you never expected to be that. And so, and so in, in our lives, as time passes, we experience a kind of migration. And the book, I guess, looks at what if we were to think of ourselves instead of natives and migrants as universally migrants. And what if a kind of migration apocalypse were to occur where everybody moved um, and yet the result wasn't an apocalypse. You know, maybe it was a world with better food and better music and, you know, uh, a better dating scene. And, you know, you just sort of everybody... So it, it was... That was that, that novel. And then The Last White Man, in a sense, is also a novel that, that um, tweaks reality, not with these doors, but with people changing color. And so first, um, Anders becomes dark. And his girlfriend, Una, is sort of grappling with this change. And, and it's a relationship between... Anders and Una, this one love story. Anders and his father, who's, who's, who's very unwell, and the second love story. And Una and her mother, who has a secret fear that white people are being sort of replaced and, um, and having their status, you know, undermined. Sounds familiar. Yeah, and yeah. Which, which in this case, turns out in the novel that she's right. I mean, white people are <laughs> in a way, being... Uh, so, so her worst nightmare comes true. Um, and I guess in both these novels, they exist in a world that feels very much a world of realism, but with one tweak. Um, people become dark in The Last White Man or these doors open in Exit West. And I think the reason for that is that, um, that reality is not as real as we think that it is. Reality is something that we sort of imagine into existence to a large extent. So um, who could have believed that we would live in a world where suddenly you couldn't travel for two years and schools were going to be shut? And you'd have to work from home, and uh, and and you know that seems like an inconceivable situation, and yet it has just happened. Uh, and similarly, you know, uh, the way that we come up with who we are, this idea of a self, it's a story we tell about ourselves, and we keep updating that story, and then suddenly we'll do something that seems very different from you know I'm a nice guy and I behave in like a nasty way, and I think I wasn't myself. But I was myself. It's just that the story I tell about myself is a fiction that's a bit nicer than the truth of who I actually am. Mm. So I guess what I try to do in these novels is to very slightly tweak reality um, and open up a kind of bit more fertile space, which, uh, which is not um, unreal, but in some strange way allows readers to imagine things more freely and perhaps more honestly than, than otherwise we get to do if we all pretend that consensus reality applies to everything. One of the other ways that the book does that, I think, really interestingly, is its deliberate vagueness around where the events occur. And everyone you speak to about this book has a different, very firm belief of where it's set. So two questions for you, Mosin. One, where is it set? And two, yeah. why did you set it there? So I, was, I did this interview um, in Melbourne and the interviewer on the radio said, so this is a novel set in America. Um, and, and, and they asked, you know, why do you set it in America? And I said, I, I actually didn't set it in America. You set it in America. Uh, um, and in Britain, people were saying, oh, this is set in the UK or Norway or South Africa. And, 
Um, America, the same thing. Some people would think definitely it's the US. Somebody would say this clearly, this is Sweden. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it has to do, I think, with uh, you know, how novels work and, and how I try to build them in response to how I think novels work. So right now in human culture, we have you know, three main mass reproduced storytelling forms. We have cinema, we have television, and we have books. And in cinema and television, what happens is we are viewers of an experience that looks a lot like the world. Mm. So on a cinema or television screen, what you're looking at looks like, um, you know, Osman and Mohsen actually sitting there having a conversation. Um, or, you know, uh, and even if what's happening is sort of fantastical, even if it's Tor, it still looks like the world. Uh, and you effectively view what looks like the world. Um, there's a creative role to a viewer of a film or a television show, but it is enormously smaller than the creative role that a reader of a book has. Because when you read a book, what you're looking at is letters and spaces and punctuation marks on a white field. And somehow those things become uh, uh, people and images and feelings and bodily sensations. And uh, the way that that happens is through an incredible creative act on the part of the reader. The reader is generating a novel to an incredibly profound degree. And it's only really matched by what happens when two little kids play together and they play house or they play you know, pirate ship or they play astronaut and they imagine this world into existence and they're doing this game. Um, when kids play like that, they are they're a little bit like readers. Mm -hmm. They are imagining a universe into existence. And I think readers uh, often think that, oh, well, you know, I'm just reading this novel that this other person wrote. It's really the writer's novel. But actually, that's not what's happening. What's happening is that the, the writer is the kid you're playing make-believe with. Um, the kid's saying, okay, well, we're now both pirates, and this tree is the master of a ship, and that tree is the master of another ship, and those leaves are sharks, and we have to get from here to there. And, and you, you're playing this imaginary thing. And so um, I think what's special about literature is it is uh, one of the very rare times in our adult lives that we get to have such a profoundly creative imaginative experience. Mm. Um, we take these letters and we make people out of them. You know, you are the casting director and the cinematographer and, um, uh, and the director and everything of the film of the novel that you create in your mind. You're the reader. So what a novelist does is a, novel, a novelist makes a kind of half novel um, and a reader makes what they experience as a novel from that half novel. And I think if that's what literature does, then what's interesting as a writer to explore is um, to write books that maximize the potential for the reader to do that, that don't necessarily over-describe things, that leave gaps for the reader to fill. And so in my books, which are usually these sort of small books, uh, what I try to do is, for example, in The Last White Man, only two characters have names. There's Anders and there's Una. And those names are sort of evocative names. Uh, where do they come from? Not quite clear. You know, is it Celtic or is it Scandinavian? Is it American? Is it, you know, who knows? Um, do they evoke a kind of ur-whiteness from the sort of primordial mm. land of where white people <laughs> came from? Or are they just, you know, just slightly, you know, weird names of people in Cincinnati? Who knows? 
but um, I feel like you know. Well, but <laughs> but the thing is, what happens is is that um, they're just, in a sense, two little things that you encounter. None of the other characters has names, has a name, and um, and the place isn't named. And so, in that environment, what the reader's imagination, I think, tends to do is readers color things in. You start to imagine that it's a particular place. You imagine that these characters look in a particular way. Mm. Um, it's a very tight novel about three love stories, really. Anders and Una, Una and her mom, Anders and his dad, dealing with the situation. And what's happening in their city, their town, um, they live in a small town, in the country beyond that, in the world beyond that, is mostly out of focus. We have a sense of what's happening, but we don't see too much detail of it. And what readers, I think, tend to do is they, they fill that in. For a reader, there's a sense of, you know, what this town looks like. Is there, how much violence is happening? Is, you know, what, what is going on in society? What's happening at the level of the country, at the world? Um, and, and so readers imagine into existence the book. Now, what's interesting about that uh, is, well, partly it means that the writer-reader relationship is like two people dancing. Mm. You know, that, that, that um, it's not that, of course, readers dancing by themselves. But the writer also isn't determining the dance of their dance partner, right? The writer is making some moves, the reader is making some moves, and the thing becomes an organic joint production. Um, but what happens is, for the reader, when you get to the end of a book, you, you can sit back and say, you know, what did I imagine into existence here? Where did this come from? How did I feel about this? Am I supposed to like Anders and Una and her, her mother? I mean... Should I judge them harshly? Should I not judge them harshly? How should I feel about this? Um, and I think that's useful because race is such an uncomfortable topic for all of us. Um, and so what the novel, I guess, tries to do is to allow the reader to have this imaginative experience around race, where much of it is being imagined into being by the reader. The reader isn't told how to judge this. And the reader can sort of, in the privacy of their own mind, reflect on how that makes you feel. Yeah. And I think that's important because um, we need to reflect on these things in, in, sense, in a space which is private to us, where, we don't, where, where nobody can say you've done the wrong thing, where nobody can say, well, you're not forced to perform a position, um, where you get to be uncomfortable, but alone. And I think that's what novels can do, is they, they really do uh, afford us the chance uh, as adults to have a creative experience that teaches us also about ourselves and how we imagine race into being and how we respond to that imagining um, and then figure out, you know, what do we want to do with that? It's a, it's a pretty simple but, but really powerful process because that lack of specificity, I think, like you say, lets the reader, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, make themselves relate to the story by making it feel like it relates to them. Like when I read the book, I thought, oh, well, this could be taking place in a town like the town I grew up in. And someone in America, someone in Sweden, someone in the UK could feel the same thing. And that might not be the case. In fact, it wouldn't be the case if you had been very specific. This is set in upstate New York and these are who these people are. But it's also interesting that it's not just the setting that's a bit mysterious. Even the details of the characters and the transformation. This is a book about a physical transformation, yet you don't really know what the person looks like before yeah. or after. We know that Anders is darker, but is he you? Is he me? Is he, is he black? It's, 
It's very, very interesting. Yeah, and and uh, and I think in a sense, oftentimes what happens um, when we are going through our lives and also when we're reading books is that we're just imagining things our particular way. And so, um, you know, when somebody will say to me that, oh, well, you know, so when Anders becomes black, uh, and mm. then, and then, you know, and they'll just sort of go on, and I'll say, well, did he, right? Maybe he did, but but if he did, it's because you imagined that actually. Yeah. Um, that was your, you know, sort of default way of thinking about this. Um, if you think he looks like me, if I, if you read the book and say, okay, he looks like me now, um, again, it's something you bring into it, and I, and I think what's what for me is is um, exciting about literature and about written fiction is that uh, is that aspect of it is that the reader gets to make so much of it um, and of course that means it's a bit more work for the reader than watching a film mm. uh, but I suppose what the novel tries to do is it tries to move you forward you know quite quickly through this and so you're hopefully imagining this world into existence but you're sort of rushing forward and maybe you read the whole book in a day yeah um and you're borne along by these long sentences that sort of just keep going and going and you're reading something and stuff is happening but you don't get to pause you keep moving forward uh and that and that that experience is an experience that we can only really have in the context of literature and it's it's um it's partly why i think you know the oral or written storytelling tradition remains so powerful um it's something that's not going to leave us because um, uh, because it's it's the only way we really get to have that kind of an experience. One of your previous novels, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, was adapted for film, a really great film starring Riz Ahmed. Yeah. Would you be open to an adaptation of something like The Last White Man or, or would that kind of cut against what you've just described because the nature of that means it has to be specific or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Have you thought about it? Well, one thing I've learned a lot from uh, cinema and television adaptations of my work, uh, of my books, is... Um, it's just how different the two forms are. Right. So in The Reluctant Fundamentalist, uh, in a way, uh, you know, I, I describe that novel as a thriller where nothing thrilling happens, right? <laughs> and uh, and you know, you're sitting there, these two guys are talking, and it, it just the tension just builds. You know, it's, it's the gunfight at the OK Corral and the sort of metaphorical tumbleweed mm. blowing across the stage. Um, but, but is it a gunfight? What are we scared of? You know? Are we just scared because this bearded guy and this sort of, you know, American guy with a military haircut have met in a bazaar and we just think, you know, something bad is going to happen. And because we've been conditioned to believe that something bad is going to happen, that once we start getting slightly suspicious signals, it becomes more and more and more tense. And the sense of violence just grows and grows and grows. And even if there's any violence in the book, um, it, it, it's there because the violence is present in our imaginations. It's been introduced into and, and blasted into our imaginations. We can't help but project it into the book. Um, so when they had to adapt that film, uh, in, that book into a film, you know, one of the challenges was, so in the novel, um, you decide how it ends, really. In, in the film, you know, as I was told, uh, nobody wants to pay 15 bucks and walk out <laughs> of a cinema and say, you know, wait, what happened? <laughs> um, film and TV um, also, in a sense, they become one reading of the book. Right. So so in that sense, the film of, of that novel was very different from the novel, you know, profoundly different. 
But in another sense, it did things a novel couldn't do. It was an Indian filmmaker, Mira Nair, collaborating with a Pakistani, you know, writer, me, um, with a cast and, you know, with Riz Ahmed in the lead, you know, uh, Liev Schreiber and, and Kate Hudson and, um, you know, Kiefer Sutherland. I mean, normally if you had a film, I mean, in, in those days, if you had a film with, you know, Riz Ahmed, Kiefer Sutherland, Liev Schreiber, uh, Kate Hudson, yeah. you know, Riz Ahmed is dead 30 minutes. <laughs> right. So, so, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't make it, you know, that, that, but, but in a sense, we've come so far. Well, in a sense, all these other characters are, are actors are playing in a sense, a supporting role to this lead performance by Riz. Yeah. Um, this Indian director is making this film about this Muslim guy and, and all these different people from all these different countries are, coming collaboratively to make this sort of work of art. And so it loses something in the ambiguity of, 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 the, of the novel, but it gains something in standing for people coming together to make a work of art, you know, from different backgrounds and traditions, um, representing, you know, a kind of cosmopolitan promise to humanity that we can do this, right? Mm. We, we can make amazing things together. And so, and so they're very different. I mean, I think they each do something important, at least to me but in completely different ways. Mm. The, the book, I mean, to me, the, the two kind of standout themes of it, one is obviously this conversation about race. I, I noted the presence of technology and, and particularly its impact in shaping our culture, our politics quite strongly as well, I think, particularly through Una's mother. Uh, tell me about your relationship with technology. I think you don't use social media, yeah. but the way that you talk about it and the way that it plays out in this book makes me think of you as one of the most insight, insightful thinkers about it. What, what is your relationship with it and, and, and why did you choose to incorporate it into this book? So um, uh, I've resisted being on social media for a very long time and about a decade ago, my agent editor said, you know, you really have to be on. Uh, and so I got on, you know, whatever it was, Twitter for a few months and got off very quickly <laughs> and um very wise yeah you know i think that i think that anybody who's had any addictive addictive experience in their life whether it's of cigarettes or alcohol or drugs or whatever um you recognize very quickly when you get onto social media just how how it is designed to replicate that kind of an addictive experience you put a post on people sort of react to it um they like it you feel good the more they like it the better you feel and then, you know, um, so for me, I, I started detecting this, um, this, you know, pretty horrific uh, relationship forming mm. where um, in a way you simultaneously become attached to this thing. Uh, you become more performative as a human being. In other words, normally the way we are is we'll think something, we'll tell our buddy, you know, um, Melbourne is, is so much better than Sydney. And then they'll, they'll say, no, actually, what do you mean? Sydney has this, this, and this. You're like, oh, okay. You know, maybe Sydney is better than Melbourne. And, <laughs> and we, we change our point of view, right? We're just we're sort of trying things out. And, but when we put a statement, for example, out on Twitter, right, then we have to live or die mm. by that statement. <laughs> so... We then have, therapist? We have to right. perform art, right? If we've got to perform it, we have to say, okay, well, I've said that, you know, the Melbourne Writers' Festival is just the best writer festival in Australia. And somebody's like, no, how can you even say that? What about this? And then in a sense, instead of saying, oh, well, that's interesting, it becomes, oh, you're attacking my view that the Melbourne Writers' Festival, you know, is 
And before we know it, we're off into a conflict where they're like, oh, well, you, you've only been to Melbourne Writer Festival once. Like, you're not even from Australia. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> xenophobia rears its ugly head. And, you know, you're, you're, before you know it, you're in this, in this conflict. And I think that, um, so I found it very, very disturbing. And I, I got, you know, the hell away from it. Um, but I still see it around me. And, uh, you know, I've seen plenty of uh, addiction in my life, you know, close people who've been addicts of various different things. And, and so I recognize, you know, the, the pernicious way in which it works. But also, I think that even more broadly, um, you know, technology is having this incredibly profound impact on human culture. And uh, it's having an impact on our attention, which I think we're all aware of how difficult it is for us to sort of govern our attention and how it gets sucked into our screen or whatever it is again and again. We wake up and look at it, you know, we touch our phone in our pocket or our bag to make sure it's there. We, you know, it's like Gollum with the ring, you mm. know, uh, <laughs> sort of, you know, where is my precious? <laughs> and, uh, and then, um, but aside from the attention side of it, uh, there's um, machine culture is, as opposed to human culture, it has a profound uh, impulse towards sorting, right? The, the way that machine culture works is, you know, zero or one. And, um, and so therefore, we, as we become and assimilate and acclimatize to machine culture, we are being redesigned to do that. So, you know, is Usman like me or not like me? Mm. And, you know, and if, he, if small bits of evidence that he's not like me become very important. Well, I thought he was like me in Melbourne, but now today it seems that he's brought me up this thing which I don't want to talk about, and maybe he's actually not. And so it's not an accident that we are seeing rampant polarization in every country in the world right now at the same time that we merge with our machines, mm. right? We are, we are in, engaged in this, in this inhuman level of sorting continuously. And so, um, and so I think, you know, for me, I guess uh, that's something to be very aware of, that I think that that kind of sorting is dangerous. I think it's much better to have a human instinct, which is, okay, somebody's like me, somebody's not like me, and there's a lot of people who are somewhat like me and somewhat not like me, or I just don't know. That blurry space is where you know humanity actually resides, mm. um, and and the machine impulse is, is not that, and and so many politicians now are are in a sense um, putting their finger on that on that pain or that pleasure receptor that that of of uh, an overactive sorting mechanism, and telling us, okay, well, the real people, you know, you're one of the real people. Let's let's save our country. Let's save our society. Let's you know we are the real ones. Those ones aren't. And so, yeah, a lot of what I'm trying to do, I guess, in my fiction is to is to interrogate that and and destabilize that. And um, and partly, I think one thing literature does is it it breaks that down, because when you read a book, you know, who are you, right? Like, are you still yourself? Mm. Are you the writer? Um, actually, you're kind of both. There's something in your head which is obviously coming from you, but not just for you. There's nobody else there. You're this strangely hybrid person when you're reading a book which for me is, is a nice kind of response to this binary zero one um, sorting that we're really being forced into as human beings in the early 21st century. It's very, yeah, it seems, I guess, such a good point in that it seems so obvious when you put it like that, that it's absolutely not a coincidence that 
at a point in history where the rate of this sorting impacted and influenced by machines is getting faster and faster and more oppressive. That's how we're being divided into these herds you were describing. Yeah. Before. I mean, you know, you, you think about how you shop for something, right? Book. And then it's sort of, okay, well, you know, you want this kind of book or that kind of book. And then within this kind of book, that or this or that or this. And you're being, in a sense, guided um, through a series of choices towards a particular outcome, which is, which is very, very specific and defined in a particular way. Um, our, our market now is becoming a market of very you know, narrowly specified things in particular categories. And, um, and that's quite different from walking into a bookstore and somebody saying, oh, Mohsen, I haven't seen you in a while. By the way, I think you'd love this. Mm. Um, or somebody standing over there looking at something and just catches your eye and you think, I wonder what that is. Yeah, right. And, um, and so, so I, yeah, I think, I think that uh, we need to, you know, guard ourselves against the way in which a sort of machine culture is being inserted into our human culture. Um, and, and it's sort of happening almost without us um, even talking about it because I think the results are pretty disastrous. I mean, one of the things that freaked me about this the most a few years ago, I don't, I don't know if you know this, for example, but on, on kind of dating apps now, you can actually categorize by race. Yeah. You can search. You can say, I only want a Hispanic person. I only want a light-skinned person and in a way that feels like the most insidious mechanism going back to the themes of your book. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's... it's uh, that I mean, that's interesting because, as you say, you know, you're searching for people and you're sort of launching this um, uh, algorithm. But what what's almost more dangerous than that um, is what if the algorithm starts telling you, you know, what this is what your race is, mm. by the way. Um, you know, you might think of yourself as kind of brown or white or whatever, but actually, we would encourage you to think of yourself like this. Oh, these people by the way, their feedback on you was, you know, the mm. racial feedback was, this is what they think your race mm. is. Mm. Oh, this guy is, you know, Hispanic, or this guy is like multi-something, or this guy is, you know, um, too hot for race, hopefully. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's uh, I mean... Hotness transcends race. What, 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 yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Uh, only race about this guy is my heart, you know. It's, it, <laughs> uh, it, it becomes, you know, I think what, what starts happening is um, we allow other people to sort us. And it's, it's like, you know, you, it, 20 years ago, we were talking about how, you know, how Muslim youth is being radicalized by the internet, right? And now we're talking about how elderly, you know, American and Australian pensioners are being radicalized <laughs> by the internet. And the thing is, everybody's being radicalized yeah. by the internet because that is what its job is to do. Um, and the basic underlying part of it is, is that human beings are made to privilege, like every animal, to privilege information about threats. Um, your ancestors who would see a flash of orange in the trees and say it's probably not a tiger got eaten and didn't pass on you know, the genes to the rest of the people. And those of our ancestors who, who said, look, I think it might be a tiger, let's just walk away, <laughs> uh, lived. And we, we are now the descendants of all of these you know, cowardly but surviving human beings. <laughs> and so when we get information about something threatening, we privilege it. You know, You can walk down the street in front of your house for 10 years. People say, hey, how's it going? And, you know, how are you? And... You don't remember any of that. But one time in 10 years, somebody says some sort of something that you perceive as kind of a racist or threatening or, you know, uh, a personally endangering comment it sticks with you, it sticks with you for the rest of the day, the week, it pops up years later, you know, 
we, we privilege that information. And so um, as you design a system that tries to monetize our intelligence, that system realizes that if we give people threats, they will pay attention. Mm. And so we live in an environment where we are being subjected to a sense of threat all the time. You know, we're always, every, the screens are telling us that here's a threat, here's a threat, here's a threat, here's a threat. And then you're sorting in response to this heightened feeling of threat. Um, and I think, that, I think that that's actually very, very dangerous. And so I, one of the things which, which I guess this book is trying to do and other books are trying to do um, is to say, you know, what if we disarm that threat thing? Let's look at what we imagine to be so threatening, this idea of race. Um, look at some love stories playing out against a pretty weird racial backdrop. Uh, and, then, and then ask ourselves, you know, do we need to feel so threatened? I mean, how much of this threat is actually something that we are manufacturing just by how we imagine stuff? And if we were to imagine differently, a lot of the threat might go away. Yeah. Um, it felt very weird to be looking at my phone and yes, exactly. as you were talking yeah. about how technology is everywhere and invading us. Um, web, web surfing while... while yeah, yeah, listen, just yeah. checking the footy score. Yeah. Um, no, I realized I had to refresh the app and there's a flood of questions, so... Mm. They're awesome. Thank you for sending them, and, and you can, and we'll try and uh, work our way through them if we can. Um, there's one that I want to start with. That this, I think, is in relation to, to the recent book, The Last White Man. The, the characters in a dialogue feel so real, intuitively. Are your characterizations based on any personal research or experiences you have with people? I think the characters probably are based on, I guess, living my life and you know, um, uh, encountering people. I wouldn't say that any of the characters in The Last White Mind is like, you know, this is my buddy Chuck and this is, you know, uh, my mom. Um, uh, I think that when I was younger, I often wrote characters who came from a milieu like mine. Mm. First novel, Motsmoke, you know, young people in Lahore, uh, the post Ziaul Haq sort of repressive Islamization of the 80s. And these are young people, you know, hooking up and doing drugs and, you know, uh, behaving badly. Um, not that that was my experience, but, you know, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I knew people like that, yeah. I, I should say. And, uh, and so, um, and my, you know, Latin Fundamentalist about a young guy working in New York City, he's gone to this Ivy League school. You know, I'd, I had done something like that, although the characters, who he was and what he chooses to do are quite different, but the background. But one thing that's happened for me as I've gotten older, and I think it has something to do with um, having kids, but also just getting older, is um, I've found it easier to give myself permission to write characters who don't have my background. Mm. And, and so much of what we do as writers is whether we give ourselves permission to do stuff, right? So why do you have the right to write about these four white people in this town? You know, you're not a white person from this town. Um, of course, everybody has a right to write whatever they want. But there's also a process by which a writer has to give themselves permission to write something. And, and for me, my way of doing that is, is, you know, it's a lot like my little boy when he comes into my study pretending to be a T-Rex, right? He, he is that T-Rex. Mm. You know, he is he's small, but he seems very large, you know, very, very dangerous, you know, very aggressive, uh, cold, you know, and he sort of fixes you with his, you know, eyes and he sort of looks around Sounds the thing. Terrifying. Yeah, he's, you know, you're sitting at your desk and it's, 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 it's a deeply, you know, disturbing. Um, <laughs> this inner herbivore starts, you know, your heart starts beating and 
roars and the you know veins on the side of his <laughs> neck is pumps in um is he well is he okay yeah <laughs> and and so you know uh he as a little boy wants to be a giant carnivorous animal right and and he, he wants to experience what that feels like well for me it became you know i want to play these characters i want to imagine what it's like to be this young man who wakes up dark you know i want to see what it's like to be this father who's dying and who realizes in, as he's, you know, for his son who's, who's become dark and he feels this is like a terrible loss. But he also feels that he has, to, he has to do something for his son. He has to give his son something. Or this mother who feels that, in a sense, her way of life and her people are being lost. Um, and to write these characters, you know, with as much dignity and sort of compassion as I can possibly muster, differentiating between, you know, do I think that the thing that, they, that she's losing is something that I think is a morally good thing? Mm. That's a separate question from, is her feeling of loss something that I want to engage with in as profound a way as I possibly can, right? So she may be feeling that the sense of a loss of whiteness is, is, is an earth-shattering thing. I don't have to agree that the loss of whitening, whiteness is that. For me to say, I can have enormous, I suppose, compassion with the feeling of loss. Um, and, you know, the same way that if somebody has a parent who's a fairly nasty person and they, and they pass away, yeah. you don't have to love the parent to go to your friend and, you know, hug them and say, oh, you know, you've lost your, your parent and I, you know, I, feel, I feel for you. So, um, so I guess, yeah, in far these characters are going, as best I could, I tried to imagine being them. There's a question about um, your narrative style for The Reluctant Fundamentalist. Um, it's, a, it's a broad question, but I'll try and narrow it. It, it. it just said, can you talk a bit more about the narrative monologue in that book? The book is sort of a novel within a conversation or a yeah. story within a conversation. It, it's a fascinating way to do it. What attracted you to that? So The Doctor Fundamentalist is, is, is a dramatic monologue, which is that this one guy, Chinggis, is telling his story to you, ostensibly this American that he meets in this bazaar, but also you, the reader. And the reader is continuously being addressed as you, uh, and there's also this character who never gets to speak back. It's like a one-man play in a, in a way. And, um, and for me, I liked that, that mode of telling the story partly because the reader's forced to sort of, you know, you know it's a one-sided conversation. You know that you're only getting half the story. Um, and in those years after 9-11, it felt so much that that wasn't the culture that we inhabited. Mm. We were all always getting half the story about how terrible America was or how about terrible Muslims are. And, you know, we're seeing story after story from one point of view, you know. Um, uh, and, and so the novel, I guess, tried to take a form that mirrored how the culture was working, but made you conscious of it. Because when you watch the news and you only get an Australian or a Pakistani or an American point of view, you can sort of just forget to realize that's what you're getting. But in a novel where it keeps saying you, 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 and there's some character who never gets to speak back, and, and you wonder, is the you me, the reader, or you, this character? You're forced to kind of stabilize it. You're forced to respond. Um, you're forced to become aware of the one-sidedness of the conversation. So that's why I picked that form. Yeah, really interesting. Um, you mentioned your, your first novel uh, was set in law. as a question about whether you would ever consider going back in terms of your writing to writing about Lahore. Yeah, I, um, in a way, I've written about Lahore a lot. Uh, uh, so my first novel, Mott's Milk, is set there, and, and Dutton Fundamentalist is being told in a bazaar in Lahore, even if the story is about this guy's time living in New York. Um, How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, my, my third novel, is in an unnamed city in an unnamed place. 
Um, but I used Lahore really as a model for that place. And Exit West begins in this unnamed city, which has a terrible civil war. And I sort of, I guess in a way, imagined Lahore as that template of a city and then had this horrific thing happen to that city, which luckily hasn't happened to Lahore. So in, in a sense, Lahore is present in my fiction quite a bit. Not, not, really so, much in, not so much in um, The Last White Man. But, uh, but partly, I guess, why I've shied away from um, writing fiction that's actively set in Lahore or actively set in Pakistan was when I moved to Pakistan in 2009, after you know many decades of living in, in London and New York, and um, I had this. It, it was interesting to see that you know a lot of people, well, so, not a lot of people. Some people would would say that you know um, you're representing Pakistan and you're you know saying that all Pakistanis are terrorists, you know, in mm-hmm. doctrine fundamentalists, or they're all you know drug users and moth smoke and i think sort of you know if you put the two books back to back it's hard to make both <laughs> claims but but you know either we're hedonist you know te- yeah. you know sex addicts or we're like fundamentalist terrorists but whatever you're doing yeah, it's not getting the plurality yeah you're not good like you know it's not good what you're up to uh and i thought you know i i, I profoundly disagreed with that criticism but i also thought i should take this seriously you know what does it mean to be writing in english you know from a place like Pakistan, you know, are you, in a sense, representing even while disavowing representation? Are you saying, oh, I'm not representing, but really you are? Mm. And I didn't think that I was engaged in a kind of, you know, cultural strip mining where I would, my novels were like these giant mining companies that were taking the culture of Pakistan, like copper ore and shipping it out and leaving behind this sort of wasteland of, of you know, but, but I thought I needed to th- take that seriously. And so, um, and so after Latin Fundamentalist, I made a decision that, look, I'm, I'm going to maybe not set these books in Pakistan. I'm going to never use the word Pakistan and never use the word Islam and never use the word Lahore uh, and force myself to describe things as what they are mm-hmm. um, so that in a way I inoculate myself against any, you know, representative virus that I may have picked up without being fully aware of it. And then when I began to do that, it opened up so many possibilities. And I started thinking, you know, instead of thinking of Lahore as some sort of exotic place or particular place, maybe Lahore is the universal city. Maybe you can think of Lahore as what every city is like in the same way that the novelist writing in Paris in the 19th century or London in New York in the 20th century would just write about New York and people say, oh, this is a novel about the city mm, in the mm. world. But Lahore is a novel about, you know, mangoes and terrorism. Um, <laughs> instead, you could say, well, maybe Lahore is actually this universal place. Maybe every city in the world is like Lahore. And then that opened up a really interesting kind of space for me. And so, yeah, that's sort of how it happened. I, I, I might write a, a novel set in Lahore or Pakistan yeah. again. But for a while there, it was about trying to be very conscious of, you know, not engaging in this, in this potential representative trap. Yeah. As someone born in Lahore, I'm very into this idea of it being the universal city. Yeah, it is. It um, is. This is another question um, from, from Sufyan. You, you're allowed to put your name. Most are anonymous. But uh, Sufyan asks, as a person of color, do you think we're conditioned to have an internal shame or phobia about race and as a result try harder to portray ourselves as not colored? I think, I think you know, it depends. And, um, and also, you know, if you're growing up in Pakistan, for example, mm. where everybody is in a sense brown, I mean, there are, there are light-skinned and darker-skinned Pakistanis, but there isn't race as such, right? You, you, you know, there, there is a pigmentocracy, like maybe it's better to be light-skinned in some you know, uh, sense. 
Um, but it's not the case that lighter-skinned people are a different race than darker-skinned mm. people. Everybody's a Pakistani. Mm. Uh, and that's a very different context, right? Because then you don't think of yourself as a person of color, although, of course, everybody is a person of color. You, you just, you know, you think, okay, well, there's skin tone. It's like, it becomes like height, you know, or, or like, um, you know, having a nice smile or like uh, being athletic. It's not a race. I mean, it, it, there's, there's, a, there's a value system attached to it, but it's not a race. Um, and that's, that can be quite liberating. Mm. You know, when, when our daughter was born in 2009, we moved back to Pakistan three months afterwards, and it wasn't entirely an accident that we moved back, my wife and I, at that time. Uh, and there were many reasons for moving back to Pakistan in 2009. But one of the reasons, I guess, in the back of my head was I liked the idea of, of our kids um, just came to think of themselves as normal people mm. for a bit before somebody else could tell them that they weren't. And which is not to say, oh, well, everybody growing up in Australia who's a person of color should move back to their homelands or their kids. It wasn't that. It was more, it was more um, that I was aware that something happened. And I myself moved to California when I was three. You know, something happens when, in a sense, race gets authored onto you. Mm. So the question was about, you know, do people of color do X, Y, or Z in response to that? I think for me, it's interesting to sort of start before that and say, you know, how did we become people of color? Mm. You know, what was done to us to add, you know, of color to the underlying truth of people, mm. right? Because we were always people. The of color thing somehow got done to us. And uh, you don't have to go back and live in Pakistan to, you know, to undo that. It's, it can be undone here or it can be not undone, but recognized. And, and, yeah. and, um, but in a way, it's, uh, uh, I think the, the idea is to restore a sense of authorship to people, both in terms of imagining who I am or you are, um, but also in recognizing how other people are imagining onto you stuff. That what they imagine isn't necessarily true. And um, the issue may lie much more in how they are imagining that onto you than into what you actually are. And that's where I think novels are interesting because we all get to see how we imagine stuff. Yeah. And then we can reflect on, wait, what am I up to? What do I do? Um, there was a question about the title of the novel. It's it's the last white man. It's not the last white woman or the last white person, for that matter. And the questioner was wondering how emphatic the role of gender is in the story, in the conceit. Well, I, gender is important. I mean, the la it's the last white man in a sense uh, uh, because Andres's father is dying, and in the novel, uh, when everybody's sort of getting darker, there's one guy who still hasn't yet, although he's he's about to pass away who's Anders's father and so in a sense that character was was um was the hook uh, for the title um but uh, in terms of in terms of gender i think that uh, uh i mean it's, it's about one minute and 30 seconds left because it's a big topic to unpack <laughs> um you know i guess the compressed answer of it is that gender is of course very very important um, that there is a sort of racial dynamic that plays out of whiteness and non-whiteness. Um, there's also a gender dynamic that plays out with, with manness, in a sense, at its center, and womanness or, or non-manness mm -hmm. away from the center. 
um, that that uh, in a way man is default and everything else gets described in relationship to that. So centering on both of those two things, man and white, as like a default setting uh, uh, was important. But but I suppose for me, as a man writing these women characters from the inside, you know, what's it like to be Una? What's it like to be Una's mother? There's there's a transgressive act to that, right? Mm. Like if you're a man writing somebody who is a woman, or if you're somebody who's dark writing somebody who's light, uh, you're engaged in a kind of tran- uh, transgression. And for me, it, one of the things about art that's so interesting is there's a representative storytelling impulse, right? Like, let me tell the story of my kind of person yeah. or just me. And that's very important, particularly when certain types of stories have been systematically prevented from being told. And so I think representative fiction is really important. But I also think, what is it like to be somebody else mm. is such an interesting aspect of, of the human imaginative system and something that is in a way like a superpower that we possess. And, and many of the problems that we face um, that superpower might be quite useful. You know, let's imagine being somebody who look, doesn't look like us, who's from a different gender, a different race, and allow ourselves to imagine that and see, does that change how we see things? Most, and that's all we've got time for. I'm sorry, but thank you so much for being so generous with your thoughts and time, and thank you. Thank for you. And thank yeah. you all. Yeah. Watch Talks from Antidote 2022 on stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.